0: You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. When we do these multi-episode cases on serial killers, there tend to be a mix of emotions along the way. The first episode, when we cover the killer's younger life, tends to give us pause as we see some of the things that may or may not have played a part in them becoming the monsters that they did become. The second episode usually leaves me with sadness and pause as we cover the people who wound up in the path of monsters and wound up dying an untimely death. As we move on to the third episode, it's usually my favorite to write and produce because we get to talk about the way that the monster gets captured and the sentences that they are handed. This case is no different. There is no denying that this man was one of the worst monsters that ever walked on this earth, and thankfully we are about to discuss the way he was able to be captured after years of fooling everyone, and he got what he deserved in the end. Even though his life will never add up to all of the lives that he took, there is some sense of closure for friends and loved ones of those that were killed in knowing that there is one less monster around to cause this kind of destruction today. Hello, My name is Lance, and welcome to episode 83 of Gone But Never Forgotten, part 3 on John Wayne Gacy, the capture and the end of the killer clown. Last week, we ended the episode by talking about the kidnapping of Robert Peast, the murder that would finally wind up unraveling the fictitious world that John Wayne Gacy had created. We left off at the point where John had gone to the police station to file an official report stating that he had not come into contact with Peast, and instead saying that he had been to the Nissan Pharmacy and gone back To retrieve his date book after Phil Torf, the owner of the store, had called him to let him know that he had left it there. That was denied wholeheartedly by Torf in a written statement, and finally, after being fooled alongside seemingly everyone else for so long, police decided to investigate Gacy more. Investigators were of the belief that they were on the trail fast enough that if Gacy had anything to do with the disappearance of peace, then he may still be holding him alive and against his will inside of his home. Investigators would obtain a search warrant to search Gacy's home on December 13th, two days after Robert had disappeared. The search of Gacy's home would come up with a number of interesting and suspicious items. Inside of an office drawer, they found several police badges and a six-millimeter starter pistol. Inside of a cabinet in Gacy's bathroom, they would find a syringe and a hypodermic needle. In Gacy's bedroom, they found several books and seven pornographic movies entailing homosexuality and also pedophilic titles and also capsules of amyl nitrite. In his spare bedroom, investigators found a two-by-four with two holes drilled into each end, creating a homemade pillory, bottles of Valium and Atropine, and several different driver's licenses. They also would find clothing, including underwear that were much too small to fit Gacy. Finally, they also found a class ring from Maine West High School that was engraved with the initials J. A S. They also found a Nissan Pharmacy receipt in the trash with a 36-inch piece of nylon rope. Obviously, all of these findings would set off some alarm bells. Investigators had no idea what they were dealing with at this point, as they were simply looking into the disappearance of Robert. They would, however, also take Gacy's personal vehicle, his Oldsmobile, and also his PDM work vehicles, so that they could be examined off-site. Surveillance would also be set up for Gacy around the clock, with two separate teams taking 12-hour shifts. Around that same time, Michael Rossi, the employee who had previously lived with Gacy, would call investigators and tell them about the disappearance of Gregory Godzik, and also the fact that another former employee of Gacy, Charles Hatula, had been found drowned in the Illinois River earlier that year. Two days after that initial search warrant, Desplaines' investigators would start uncovering a lot of information. They looked further into the battery charge against Jeffrey Rignall, and they also spoke with Gacy's ex-wife, who told them that she believed that he may have had something to do with the disappearance of John Bukovic. Investigators were also able to trace the ring that they had found in Gacy's home back to John Allen Schitz. So, suffice to say that police were starting to realize that there may be a whole hell of a lot more going on with John Gacy than what they initially believed. At first, Gacy seemed to play off the fact that he was being tailed by police everywhere that he went, and he seemed to laugh off the search warrant. He even seemed to spit and laugh in the face of the entire situation. He would frequently invite the surveillance teams into his home, as well as out to dinner with him at restaurants, and even out for drinks at bars. He told all of the officers that were working his detail that he had nothing to do with Robert Peet's disappearance, and he even told the officers that they and their superiors were harassing him for no reason. He would go on to say that he believed that he was being targeted because of his political associations, affiliations, and aspirations. He also thought that it might all stem from his recreational use of drugs as well seemingly trying to place why there were drugs that were found inside of his home. Over time, though, Gacy started to get irritated, and he would break laws while driving, work hard to lose the surveillance teams, and even mock them at intervals. It was hard to tell whether his actions and words were a concerted effort to throw everyone off, or if he was unraveling because he knew that the jig was up. While the surveillance was ongoing, obviously so was the investigation. Police would make use of police dogs within the vehicles that they had taken from Gacy. Inside of the Oldsmobile, investigators would come across fibers in the trunk that they believed were consistent with human hair. The police dogs would enter the vehicle and try to make a determination as to whether Robert Peast had been inside of the vehicle. One of the dogs got into the Oldsmobile and laid down on the passenger seat, which was a signal from the dog that a death or a dead person had been in the passenger seat of the vehicle. Things with the surveillance team started to get even weirder. On December 17th, Gacy would invite two of the officers out for dinner, and then again for breakfast at two different restaurants. Over the meals, Gacy seemed to be jovial, and he talked to the officers about his contracting business, about his past relationships, and about the gigs that he did as a clown around the area. At one point, over breakfast, Gacy said to the officers blankly, quote, You know, clowns can get away with murder, unquote. During those meals, officers noted that Gacy did seem to be coming apart at the seams a little bit. He was starting to look exhausted. He did appear to be anxious under the surface, and although he was trying to keep that from coming to the forefront, it was definitely noticeable. They noticed that he had started to drink more heavily, and he seemed to have stopped shaving. To try and combat everything that was going on in his life and to stick to his idea that he was being harassed, on December 18th, Gacy would drive to see his lawyers off at their office to set in motion a $750,000 civil suit against the Des Plaines police. Part of the lawsuit was Gacy demanding that the police cease all surveillance. On the afternoon of the 18th, however, police discovered that the receipt from Nissan Pharmacy belonged to one one of Robert Peest's co-workers, 17-year-old Kimberly Byers. Kimberly would tell police that she had worn the jacket the day that Robert had gone missing, when she had gone outside. While wearing the jacket, she had put the receipt in the pocket but Robert had put the jacket on right before he left the store to go to talk to the contractor. This obviously was a smoking gun for investigators who were trying to make any connection between Robert Peast and John Gacy. This proved that Robert had at least been in contact with Gacy at some point. Interviews with Michael Rossi would uncover the fact that Gacy had paid Michael in the summer of 1977 to spread lime in the crawlspace under the house. This was another thing that investigators were able to take to a judge to obtain a second and obviously more extensive search warrant on Gacy's home. As that was in the works, the civil suit from Gacy against the investigators was working its way through the court. The, hurry, the hearing for the civil suit was scheduled to be before a judge on December 2nd, and on the 19th, Gacy would also invite the detectives on surveillance duty back inside of his home. Officer Robinson distracted Gacy with conversation, while Officer Schultz went into his bedroom to try and write down the serial number on the TV that investigators believed had also belonged to John Schitz. While using the washroom and flushing the toilet, though, Schultz noticed a strong smell coming through the heating system of the home. The smell had not been noted before because the heating system had not been on when officers had searched or been inside of the house. Schultz immediately noted that the smell could very well be the smell of rotting corpses. Interviews with Michael Rossi and David Cram, both who had lived and worked with Gacy, would uncover more information about the crawl space. They discovered that many young men had been asked over the years to spread lime and dig holes in the crawl space. They were of the belief that the holes being dug were for drainage pipes. The diggers were always told not to deviate from exactly where they were told to dig and Cram said that the holes were approximately two feet wide, six feet long, and two feet deep, which investigators quickly realized would be approximately the size needed to bury a young man. Unexpected things started to happen on December 20th. Gacy drove over in the evening to his lawyer's office for what was a scheduled meeting to talk about the civil suit, and how they were going to proceed with that. When Gacy showed up, he seemed to be anxious and run down, and he immediately asked if he could have a drink. His lawyer got a bottle of whiskey from his car, and Gacy started to drink heavily. Even though he provided the alcohol, Gacy's lawyer was seemingly getting tired of the repeated claims of innocence with lack of evidence to back it up, and as such, he asked Gacy what he had to discuss with his lawyers. He pressed Gacy, telling him that Gacy had told him that he had something new to tell him. Gacy picked the local newspaper up, pointed to the front-page story about Robert Peast, and told his lawyers, quote, The boy is dead. He's dead. He's in the river, unquote. Casey would then go into great detail for hours, telling his team of lawyers that he had been the judge, jury, and executioner for a lot of people in Illinois. He then would say that he wanted to be all of those things for himself. He told them that he had killed at least 30 people, and that most of the bodies were buried under the crawlspace of his home. He said that he had also dumped five other bodies into the Des River. When asked about the victims, Gacy dismissed them. He said that most of them were male prostitutes, hustlers, and liars. He then said that he would trick them into watching magic tricks, and that he sometimes woke up to find strangled kids on his floor with their hands cuffed behind their backs. He said that the bodies were under his home because he believed that those victims had become his personal property. During his confession, Gacy kept falling in and out of sleep, likely with the help from the alcohol, which made the meeting and the confession really drag on. Gacy's lawyers immediately set up a psychiatric appointment for him at 9 a.m. the following morning. However, when Gacy woke up the next morning and his lawyers told him about the confession that he had given, Gacy said that he had things that he had to do then, and he ignored the scheduled psychiatric appointment and said he had business things to attend to as he rushed out of their office. Casey would later say that he knew that his arrest was now inevitable, so he made a trip around to say his goodbyes to people in his life. Casey's first stop, though, was at a gas station, where, as he filled his rental car up, he gave a bag of marijuana to a man that was working at the gas station. The attendant immediately told the surveillance detail and gave them the marijuana. When he told them and handed it over, he told the officers that Gacy had said, quote, The end is coming. These guys are going to kill me, unquote. From there, Gacy went to visit a friend of his, Ronald Rose. Gacy gave Ronald a hug and started to cry, telling him, quote, I have been a bad boy. I killed 30 people. Give or take a few, unquote. Gacy left there and went to visit Cram and Rossi. The tailing officers noted that while Gacy was driving on the highway, he was holding a rosary to his chin and praying. After talking with Cram and Rossi, Gacy had Cram drive him to see another of his lawyers. Cram would tell the officers that were on his surveillance that Gacy had said to him and Rossi that he had made a confession to over 30 murders with his lawyers the night before. The last stop for Gacy was to Maryhill Cemetery, where Gacy would pay a visit to his father's grave. As Gacy was driving around and being driven around, police were working hard on the second search warrant for his home. The goal was to search for the body of Robert Peast, who they believed may be in the crawlspace of the home. Surveillance detectives called in and told their superiors that they believed that Gacy may be planning to kill himself. Police then made the decision to arrest Gacy on the charge of possession and distribution of marijuana so that they could hold him in custody while they searched his home without worry that he would kill himself. At 4.30 p.m. on December 21st, Judge Marvin J. Peters would grant the second search warrant and police told Gacy that they intended to search his crawlspace for the body of Robert Peast. Gacy told police that Robert was not buried there, but he did say that he had killed a young man under his garage in self-defense. He said that he had buried the body there after it happened because he didn't know what to do with the body and he was scared. Police and technicians headed to Gacy's home, and when they arrived, the first thing that they discovered was that Gacy had unplugged his sump pump, which had caused his crawlspace to be filled with water. Investigators would plug the pump back in, and that would clear up the flooded water. When that was finished, evidence technician Daniel Gentry was the first one to enter the crawlspace, which measured 28 feet by 38 feet in size. He would crawl over into the southwest corner of the space, and he started to dig. Within only a couple of minutes, Daniel would come across putrefied flesh and a human arm bone. Daniel would yell up to investigators that they could charge Casey with murder, and he added that he believed that the crawlspace was filled with kids. A police photographer would also start to dig in the northeast corner of the crawlspace, and he found a human patella bone. The two then continued digging in the southeast corner, and they discovered two leg bones. Investigators knew that the body parts that they had come across were far too decomposed to have belonged to Piste. As investigators continued to dig, they continued to find more body parts, and they started to realize the scale of the crimes that they may be uncovering. Meanwhile, at the station, Gacy was told that the investigators had found human remains in his crawlspace and that he was going to be formally charged with murder. In response to that, Gacy told the officers that he wanted to, quote, clear the air, and he said that he knew that his arrest for murder was inevitable since he had made a confession to his lawyers the previous night. In the early hours of December 22nd, with his lawyers present, John Wayne Gacy would file a formal statement. He confessed to killing approximately 30 young males, all of whom he said had come willingly to his home. So, he had not lured them or kidnapped them. Gacy would mention a few of the victims by name, but he also said that he didn't remember or even know some of the names of his victims. He said that he had personally only dug the graves for five, having employees dig most of the graves for him, including Gregory Godzik, who had dug his own grave. Gacy also told investigators that he had been planning to conceal all of the corpses in 1979 by covering the entire crawlspace under his home with concrete. When it came to Robert Peast, Gacy told investigators that he had got Robert to come to his house to talk about a job, and then strangled him to death in the evening hours, not long after he had arrived. He said that he had spent the night sleeping with Robert's corpse, and then disposed of the body in the early hours of December 13th in the Des River before he arrived at the police station to make his first formal statement. On his way to the station, he had been in a car accident when his car slid off the ice-covered road. He had to be towed and said that is why he was so dirty when he showed up at the station. Casey would assist investigators with the recovery of the bodies by drawing a rough diagram of his basement on a piece of paper to show where bodies were buried. The sketch was incredibly accurate. The act of retrieving bodies began on December 23rd of 1978 and carried on into the end of December. Recovery efforts would come to an end because of a bad winter and would start again on March 9 of 1979. The final body was removed from the ground on March 16th of 1979. The house would be demolished in April of 1979. At that point, all that was left, aside from the trauma, sadness, and downright evil that Gacy had caused, was the trial. John Wayne Gacy's trial started on February 6th of 1980, and he was charged with the murders of 33 young men. The trial took place in Cook County, Illinois, before Judge Louis Garippo. The defense team had requested that Gacy be extensively examined, and he spent over 300 hours with doctors at the Menard Correctional Center in Chester before his trial. He was determined to be mentally competent to stand trial, even though Gacy had tried to convince everyone that he had multiple personality disorder. Gacy contended that he had four personalities. There was the hard-working man who showed in his work as a contractor, someone that would work hard and hire others to help them, and so that he could help him do as much work as possible. There was the active politician, as shown in his work with the J.C.s and other political arenas as he grew up. There was also the clown, the fun-loving, childlike side of him that came out when he put on the clothes and makeup and performed for children. And finally, there was a policeman who Gacy referred to as Jack Hanley, or, quote, Bad Jack. He said that Bad Jack was the man that had committed the crimes and that he, John Gacy, was strictly telling investigators about the crimes that Jack had committed. He said that Bad Jack was a man who hated homosexuals. He also viewed prostitutes as scum that was meant to be under the feet of everyone else, and he believed in eradicating the world of those kinds of weak and stupid people. Gacy's lawyers in the end decided to have him plead not guilty by reason of insanity to all of the charges that were levied against him. Robert Mata, one of Gacy's attorneys, started the trial by essentially saying that insanity was the only plea that was reasonable in this case, because if Gacy was deemed to be normal, then the world had a lot more problems on their hands because the definition of normal was severely skewed if John Wayne Gacy belonged within those confines. On the flip side, the prosecution presented Gacy as sane and in full control of everything that he did. They said that it was obvious that Gacy was in control because most, if not all, of his transgressions were premeditated. They also sought to prove that he had taken extreme actions to cover up detection, both in his personal life and inside of his home. They said that doing things like having graves dug before there were victims proved that he intended to make more victims. Rossi and Cram would testify that Gacy was always making sure that the employees and none of the workers ever dug somewhere that he didn't tell them to. One of the surprise witnesses that was called to the stand by the defense was Jeffrey Rignall, who was called to the stand on February 21st during his testimony, which was used to try and provide proof that Gacy was not being himself when he attacked Jeffrey. Jeffrey instead would be dismissed because he was crying and being physically ill, unable to provide further testimony. Robert Donnelly would also testify against Gacy and have a hard time. He was having an awful time remembering the abuse that he suffered at the hands of Gacy, and came close to losing it a few different times on the stand. As he was struggling to testify, Gacy openly and repeatedly laughed at him. During the fifth week of the trial, Gacy wrote a personal letter to Judge Garippo and asked for him to make the trial a mistrial for reasons that included his personal stance that he did not want to plead insanity. He also said that his lawyers had not allowed him to take the witness stand as he had intended to do and that the defense had not called enough medical witnesses to the stand. He also stated that verbal statements that were provided by police stating what he had said to them were not true and that they were lying about things that he said to help the prosecution. The judge told Gacy that the defense team had the needed funds to call whoever they needed to the stand, and that if Gacy wanted to testify, he was legally able to do so. All he needed to do was request such from the judge himself. On March 11th, court would come to an end. The prosecution closed the case by calling Gacy the worst of all murderers, and they said that, quote, John Gacy has accounted for more human devastation than many earthly catastrophes, but one must tremble. I tremble when thinking about just how close he came to getting away with it all, The prosecution took four hours to close their case. The defense closed their case by saying that painting Gacy as a monster was not, in of itself, evidence. They said that Gacy was a man who was driven by compulsions that he did not have the ability to control, and they said that the prosecution had not proven that Gacy was sane beyond any reasonable doubt. There were doctors that had testified on both sides of that question. In the final words from the prosecution, William Kunkel removed the photos of the 22 known victims at the time from a display board that was in the courtroom, and he told the jury that they had a job to not show sympathy, but rather to show justice. He said that they needed to show the same sympathy that Gacy had shown every time that he took a life and had their, ba- their body buried underneath his home. It only took the jury one hour and 50 minutes to return to the courtroom and announce that they had come to a verdict. Gacy was found guilty of 33 charges of murder, as well as a charge for sexual assault and taking indecent liberties with a child, in regards to the case of Robert Peast. At the time of his verdict, 33 murders was the most that any person in the United States had ever been convicted of. The jury would then deliberate for two more hours and return to sentence John Wayne Gacy to death for each murder that he had committed after the Illinois Statute on Capital Punishment had come into effect in June of 1977. His execution would be originally set for June 2nd of 1980. As all of us know, that was never going to be the case, however. Delays are something that run rampant in our legal systems. Gacy would read legal books non-stop after he was put on death row. He filed numerous motions and numerous appeals and of course did not win any of them. He appealed things like the first search warrant that was carried out by the police. He said that there was not suitable evidence for them to receive such a thing. He also continued to appeal the fact that his lawyers had him enter an insanity plea. He even tried to say that he had only committed murder five times, and that employees of his had committed the other murders while he was out of state on business trips. Business trips that there were not any proof of, mind you. After all of the appeals, in 1984 the Supreme Court of Illinois would uphold all of the convictions and Gacy's execution would be set for lethal injection and set to take place on November 14th of 1984. More appeals would come and more appeals would be dismissed and the years would drag on. Finally on the morning of May 9th of 1994 John Wayne Gacy was transferred from the Menard Correctional Center to Stateville Correctional Center to be executed. On his last day alive, Gacy would have a private picnic on the grounds with his family. His last meal would consist of a bucket of KFC chicken, French fries, a dozen fried shrimp, strawberries, and a Diet Coke. Before his execution, the chemicals that Gacy was to be injected with solidified and clogged the IV that was to be used to administer the chemicals into his body. The blinds that were open for the witnesses were drawn closed and then reopened approximately 10 minutes later when the tube had been replaced. John Gacy's death took 18 minutes. William Kunkel, one of the men who prosecuted Gacy, said that he had gotten a much easier death than any of his victims had. Gacy in the end was a diagnosed psychopath who never admitted any sorrow or remorse For the murders that he committed up until the bitter end he was just a bitter old man who said that the state was killing him much like he had killed all of the young men that fell victim to him he said that killing him did not fix a single thing i would argue that it certainly did at the very least all of those families and everyone around the world knew that at least one more monster was gone forever from this world the last words that gacy spoke were kiss my ass which he evidently said to a state official he was an ass hat right up until the very end gacy's death was confirmed at 12:58 a.m. on may 10th of 1994 over the years of course there have been many murders that have been believed to have been a part of gacy's spree but we will never know if there were or are more victims. One can only wish that there was a way to give closure to those families, if indeed the deaths could be attributed to John Wayne Gacy. And that's where we'll leave the case. We looked at the childhood of the monster, we looked at the life and murders of the monster, and we looked at the end of the life of the monster. I would love to have more conversation with you over on social media or over on Patreon about this case. Let me know what you think about any of it. Do you think that Gacy's childhood played a major role in who he became? Do you think that he was insane and shouldn't have deserved the death penalty? How does this case make you feel? For me... I see so much parallel, the contractor that molested him, and he would become a contractor. It's like he believed that he would have easy access to young people. We see the lashing out against homosexuals, and obviously that was a part of his childhood as well. I'm not sure where I stand, because as I mentioned before, he did reconcile with his father before the murders started. So... Does the trauma from your past not end? Does it come out in this serial madness that became the life of John Gacy? Or was he just always going to be a killer? Let's talk about it. After all, I think that this is something that's missing in our world these days, which is honest-to-goodness discussion about topics like this where people come in with an open mind and can openly share regardless of what they feel. I really do miss those days. I digress though. Thank you for listening to another episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. I hope that this episode found you well, and I hope that we all continue to be better. See you next week on Gone But Never Forgotten.